needed help pushing a button. (laughs) Open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to consider uh, verses 4 through verse 10. And this account is is a well-known account, uh, at least as far as it's brought forward into the New Testament in the Gospel of John. Um, But we'll look at it from the the standpoint of Numbers. So Numbers chapter 21, and uh, let's begin reading at verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread." And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in Oboth. There's always a danger in, in sharing a well-known passage or well-known truth in God's word because it is so familiar. We, we often um, understand much about that passage. And again, as I mentioned, in John chapter 3, this is the account that our Lord brought forward as he spoke to Nicodemus. He said very clearly in John chapter 3 and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There in the Gospel of John and in other places, I think you would agree with me that in its most basic elements, the Gospel is very simple. It's very plain. Uh, The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 45, he said, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look and live. Look and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The gospel, in its its simplest elements, we understand that the double transfer, when our sins, our iniquities, our, our due punishment was put upon Christ on Calvary's cross, and then he gives to us that righteousness that has merited eternal salvation. God does everything. 
We do not add any works to us. We need salvation because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ are all all made alive. So so the gospel in in its simplest elements is quite plain. It's quite, quite simple. But also there are many, once you start pulling the layers back, there are many intricacies. There are many doctrines. There's spiritual layers. There's gospel treasure, spiritual truth, uh, uh, majestic truth, wonders in the gospel. You can get very, very deep. None of us have even scratched the surface, I believe, of God's gospel. This book, uh, never a book spoke like this book. This book opens up, begins to open up to us this salvation that God has designed from eternity past. There's a thought there that God has founded the gospel in his mind, his infinite mind, his perfect mind from infinity past. And so hopefully we'll learn some new things about God's gospel as we look at uh, Numbers 21 today, and we'll, of course, revisit some old truths that I trust are not worrisome or tiring to us. But as we begin to think about this account in Numbers 21, I think we have to ask us, ask some questions. We, we can't just read it through quickly. We want to begin to open it up and understand. Uh, uh, questions like this. Why did God send fiery serpents as a result of the people's sin? When God could have used any other means of judgment. Uh, remember in the Old Testament, sometimes he would send fire down. Other times he opened up the earth to swallow up the gainsayers. Sometimes he would let the enemies of God's people attack them. Why does God use, in this case, fiery serpents? What is a fiery serpent? Um, is there any relationship between this, this brazen serpent that is, that is raised up, that defeats the serpents on the ground, and, and Aaron's rod that turned into a serpent, that when that serpent was thrown down in Pharaoh's court, it ate up all those serpents. Is there any relationship between these two? How, how long did it take Moses to make this serpent? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a foundry process. It was made in bronze or brass. Did he just make it instantaneously? We read it, and it sounds like he made it instantaneously, but what was the time period to make that? This bronze serpent that was lifted up on a pole, in some way it represents or it foreshadows or typifies the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. What other symbol in the Old Testament which represents Christ was also lifted up on a pole? And again, what is the relationship between Nicodemus and the Israelites back here? In other words, In the Gospel of John, John brings this particular instant into Nicodemus' life. What is the connection? There is a connection, by the way, between Nicodemus and these Old Testament Israelites in Numbers 21. So so this, again, as we start to peel back layers, we start to see this this tremendous treasury of gospel truth, what's going on here. We're just going to scratch the surface today. There's so much to the gospel story. So... Under the title of Death and Deliverance, we have six segments this morning. And if you'll pardon the alliteration, we'll look at number one, discouragement. 
Number two, disparagement. Number three, discipline. Number four, decision. Number five, display. And number six, deliverance. So first of all, discouragement. Discouragement. In verse four, we read that the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. They were very discouraged. This is an interesting Hebrew word. It's only translated discouraged one time. Every other time, it's, it's the word that means to be, be cut off or, or docked off. In other words, they're done. Have, have you ever been in a, in a spot in your life, either with a circumstance or some individuals, and you just say, I'm done. That's it. Their soul was done with this whole scheme of God providing for them in the wilderness, taking them, promising to take them to the promised land, they were done. They were discouraged. The scripture says they were discouraged because of the way. It was a difficult way. In chapter 20, which we did not read, they were trying to pass through Edom's property. And Edom refused to give them passage, even though Israel said, we're going to stay on the highway. Uh, we're not going to pick your grain or, or eat your food. If anyone does, we'll pay for it. We just will go through very expediently and quickly. But Edom came out and said, no, you're not. So, so they have to take a roundabout way. Um, so they go to, to uh, from Kadesh, they go to Mount Hor, and that's where Aaron died. So, so Aaron, that, that pre, uh, preeminent high priest in their midst, he died. So they have to mourn for him 30 days. And then earlier in chapter 21, which we did not read, they had a military victory. And even though they had a victory, war can be very emotionally draining and physically draining, and, and there's a cost uh, to it. And again, the, the, the way that they're going, it turns out that when they were traveling is, is one of the hottest seasons. And the way that they're going... Um, it's, it's very sandy, it's desolate, it's, it's very drought-ridden. Uh, there's mountains on the side, so they're trying to make this passageway way through. Um, but again, because they had to take a roundabout way, they're heading away from the promised land. So they're taking this, this long roundabout journey. They're discouraged, much Discouraged because of the way. Being discouraged is not a sin. Elijah was discouraged. Paul was discouraged. But, but what's starting to happen here is the discouragement is going to give way to sin. So for the Christian, I mean, we, we can be discouraged because of the way. Um, trials of our faith, afflictions, temptations. Just, just living in this present evil age uh, can be a, a, an affliction to our soul. Uh, trying to bring every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. I mean, that's a full-time job right there. Um, and we deal with our lukewarmness occasionally and our wanderings and our, in our spiritual life, which ebbs and flows. Um, it, it's an it's interesting context where the Israelites are, where they become discouraged, because a lot of things are happening in their life. And there's this, I think, this cumulative effect in their life. We have very similar type contexts in our life as well. Uh, winning a, a war, a spiritual war, 
but being emptied emotionally. Um, going to battle. Uh, dealing with the Edomites, this world that's not very friendly to the Christian. Uh, moving away from the promised land. We, we have a desire to be in heaven, but sometimes it's, it's like, will we ever get there? Um, and so again, the peoples were much discouraged because of the way. And so now this is going to open up a door to reveal how much they really needed the Lord at, at this time when they were at their bottom. So number two, disparagement. This is a little bit shocking when we realize what, what God's people are doing, or at least those outward professors are doing. Verse 5, it says, The people spoke against God and against Moses. They were disparaging God. To disparage something means to, to speak against, to have derogatory uh, thoughts, and, and to speak and to belittle and, and false statements. Uh, injurious statements against God himself. They were now discounting God's providence, God's promises. They were discounting what God had said he would do just because they had some trouble in the way. And all of their speaking against God and speaking against Moses, when you, when you, when you take it in, when you understand it, it's almost like they are saying what Pharaoh said. Remember what Pharaoh said? He said, who is the Lord that I should serve him? It's almost like these Israelites are saying, who is God that we should serve him out here in the wilderness, uh, going through this, this, this whole thing? It's unthinkable what they're doing. They're not making a golden calf and worshiping a golden calf. Uh, they're not committing uh, a fornication and murder. They're not committing some outlandish sin that their enemies practice. They're speaking against God. They're speaking against God. So they're speaking against God himself. I think, I think it's, it's 10 times in the Old Testament. In the first two years of, of their trek in the wilderness... Ten times in two years, they speak against God and there's some confrontation between the people and God. Think about that. So that's like, what, every two and a half months, they're majorly speaking against God for something he either did do or he didn't do or he didn't do something the way they thought. It should be planned out for them. I don't think... And then they speak against Moses. So even though they're speaking against Moses, ultimately they're speaking against God. And I don't think they ever spoke anything nice about Moses, which is an interesting concept. Moses led them the whole way, eventually. They never had anything good to say about the guy. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They did not trust in his salvation, in his way. They did not believe the promises. They said they were going to die in the wilderness. Now, it turns out this account... Um, is near the end of their trek. So if God wanted them all to die in the wilderness, they would have all been dead by now. And that this is the next generation. There's, there's a lot of people here. Um, this is that next generation that God said he would raise up to inherit the promised land. And now they're falling prey to the same sin as their fathers. We're going to die in the wilderness. Notice what they say. There's no bread. Is that true? There's no bread? God gave them manna. 
six days a week for 40 years in the wilderness, in abundance. They said there's no water. Is that true? They drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, Christ. Uh, God would lead them to, to streams and to wells of water, and they didn't lack any water. Next statement is true. Our soul loathes this light bread. That's a true statement. It's a very bad statement, but that's true. They did not appreciate the manna. They cast dispersions upon how the Lord had provided for them. The psalmist said in Psalm 78, verse 19, they spoke against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? God responds. God says, Moses smote the rock and waters gushed out. The people said, well, did God provide bread? Can God give flesh to his people? God became wroth and his fire kindled, was kindled against Jacob and against Israel because they did not believe God. They did not trust in God. God rained down manna. Uh, the scripture says it was angel's food. Man did eat angel's food. But they murmured, they complained, they spoke against God, they gossiped, they murmured, they chided, they disbelieved, they discouraged. They tempted God's patience. They tempted God's wisdom. They tempted God's power. They tempted God to become wrath in acting against them. They sinned a great sin, speaking against God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we are warned in verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and they were destroyed of serpents. Paul alluding to this account where God had to send fiery serpents amongst them. They were tempting Christ. They were tempting God. Are we content with the path we're on? Are we content with the bread and water that he has given to us? They disparaged the Lord. We cannot underestimate or overvalue how bad of a sin that was. Thirdly, discipline. Discipline. So what does God do? In verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people die. Discipline. It's it's severe discipline for a severe sin. And it was judgment for those who died, whether they were saved or not. Because of this sin of of speaking against God, murmuring and disbelieving, there's this common thread that just seemed to go through their entire life. So as a judgment, God sent these serpents. Now, what do you think about when you think, when you read in the Bible about a serpent, what what do you think of? You probably think of, of Genesis chapter 3, of course, the, the serpent who beguiled um, Eve. You think of deadly poison. You think of, of the devil. You think of death. You think, you think of the sting of the bite, uh, the sting of sin, which is death, like Genesis chapter 3. Now, in, in verse... I have to look at my note because I can't remember... In verse 8, when God told Moses to make a fiery serpent, that's not 
the normal word for serpent. That's the word seraph, like the seraph angels in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, probably from, it, from the shining aspect, from the brilliance of that. We'll, we'll come back to that. But like an angel shining, shining bright. Make a serpent that's going to solve this problem. But God has sent in these serpents as a judgment upon the people. Uh, the word serpent that he sends among the people is the normal word for serpent. A serpent, a snake. But there is a corresponding, there's a correspondence between uh, what the people felt and the remedy. And here I believe God is just very vividly demonstrating the, the awfulness, the deadliness, the vileness of what sin is. It provides a judgment. The sting of, uh, of sin is death. It's a discipline that they would have remembered Going forward, it was a discipline they would have remembered as they thought back to the Garden of Eden when that old serpent plunged the entire human race into sin. Israel's sin, speaking against God. Satan in the Garden, speaking against God, changing God's word and essentially calling God a liar. Israel's sin, not being satisfied with God's provision. The sin in the garden, not satisfied with God's provision, even though God gave them every tree to eat except for one. Israel's sin, they provoked God in the wilderness. They tempted, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Man's sin in the garden turned their back on God, grieving him. These fiery serpents that God sends into the camp or a vivid imagery and reality of what sin is. Sin kills. Sin is death. It is exactly opposite of God's righteousness, God's pure and holy justice. And so these people are, have this, this, this account reflecting how bad their sin was. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Other men's sins follow them. But regardless, if it's a hidden sin, it's an open sin. James says it conceives, it brings forth sin, and when that is finished, it brings forth death. We see this progression in the Israelites. They're discouraged. That leads way to sinning against God, and then God has to bring in this judgment upon them. God's chastening hand scourging those sons that he receives, it being done for the profit of God's people. Again, I quoted 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9 earlier, neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and they were destroyed of serpents. We want to have a legacy. As a believer, we want to have a legacy of following the Lord, no matter what it costs. The Bible says with many of them, the Israelites, with many of them, God was not well pleased. And so they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul goes on to say for us, if we were to look at our context relative to these Israelites, he goes on to say, so let us not lust or be idolaters or murmur or commit fornication. 
He's telling us we too are on a similar type journey. We'll have similar temptations, similar reasons to be discouraged. But he's saying, remember this account that happened and, and don't be like them. It's, it's this warning. So up to this point, we have this grievous sin that is throughout the camp and God's discipline, God's judgment coming by way of these, these, these serpents uh, that were sent into the camp. Fourthly, decision. Decision. The people come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and we've spoken against thee. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses being the godly leader, the godly man that he is, he doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't say, you've made your bed, now sleep in it. Moses prays for the people. The people have a decision to seek God, to seek God's help. And of course, very often it's only when trouble comes that people decide to seek the Lord. We have sinned because we're in trouble and we want to get out of the trouble. You recall those four famous individuals in the Bible who said, we have sinned, I have sinned, but they were not repentant. Pharaoh said, I have sinned. King Saul said, I have sinned. Judas Iscariot said, I have sinned. But mouthing the words, they, they did not bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. There was no change of heart. And we do not know to what extent corporately these people had truly repented. We, we generally think most of them truly did repent. They meant what they said. They spoke against God. They did speak against Moses and they were receiving in themselves that judgment. But they had no idea, I think, and this is kind of like us, no idea the, the, the invasive power of sin, that, that when sin gets into our nature, certainly as a, before we became saved, how it, it just invades every part of us. And then again, the temptations as a believer, sin can still be invasive. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So do you think the Israelites knew that God sent the serpents? They, maybe it was, they thought, uh, something of nature. Maybe it was the area they were going through. Did they ask for forgiveness besides saying, take away the problem from us? They did say, we've spoken against you. Did they try to root out the reason for the serpents? And why did they ask Moses to pray for them? Remember, they never had anything good to say about Moses. They didn't trust him. And yet they ask him to pray for them because they know every time Moses prays for them, good things happen again and they get out of the jams. It's just really showing just man's fallen nature. It's illogical. Uh, he, he acts upon when, when, only when he needs it and then when things are going well or according to his plan, he doesn't approach God. God sent these serpents that they might be humbled, that they might truly repent, that they might feel the weight of their sin, that he could teach them, if possible, not to speak against him again. 
that they would be his covenant people that would trust him. That's how he gets glory. You know, several times in the Old Testament, Moses had to argue to God, these are your people and, and the world is going to look at them. And if they're living like every other lost person in the world, what glory is that for you? So God, you have to protect and preserve your people. You have to bring them on the way. You have to make them that special or peculiar people. So Moses prays to God. And so God gives him this this remedy. So now in the fifth place today, display. Here's the answer to that prayer. The Lord said to Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, a seraph, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So this is, this is really an interesting account where Moses, or maybe he commissioned a, a workman who knew how to do this kind of thing, constructs this cast uh, bronze or brass image of a serpent and sets it upon a pole, uh, probably as, as high as they could. Um, I've, I've read that on a dark night, you could see a flickering uh, candle flame from, from 30 miles away. So if in the middle of the wilderness, this, this brass or this bronze serpent was raised on a pole, 20 feet high, 30 feet high, I don't know. Uh, but in the sun, in the desert, you could see the glittering form of this thing. And the word went out throughout the camp. If you look on that serpent, the bite, the result of those serpents that bit you will be, will be done away with. God's display for the man's sin, God's remedy was prescribed by God. And it was manifested in such a way that, that everyone who saw this, this transaction, you had to admit it was only God who was doing this. Only God could come up with this kind of a remedy. And again, this bronze serpent that's raised up on the pole represents or foreshadows or typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. As an aside, there were other symbols from the Old Testament that were raised up on a pole. The Ark of the Covenant was lifted up on poles. Uh, that the, the Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, the banner that was lifted up on a pole. There's, there's connections there. But the answer to Moses' intercession was to make this bronze serpent and raise it on a pole and whoever looks upon it shall live. And so I trust you see the, the connection between the fiery serpents that bit the people and this bronze serpent that was raised up on a pole. Again, it was God who devised it, who prescribed this antidote against the fiery serpents. So it is God who has, according to his infinite wisdom, God himself has developed the gospel of redemption and it's his way as the only way. It was very an unlikely method. It was, it was salvation by looking, by believing. And the gospel, by the death of Christ to the Jews, is a stumbling block. To, to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But Moses here is a picture of the law lifting up Christ, 
who became sin for us. And there's the connection between the fiery serpents and the serpent that was raised up on the pole. Christ became sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. And he had to take upon himself the very nature, if you will, of of the very thing that causes our death. That sin, that sting of death through sin. He had to become just like that. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. He became sin for us. The brazen serpent was lifted up. So the Lord Jesus Christ was both lifted up on the cross and he was exalted, as that word is, is translated elsewhere in the New Testament. It was, it, he was, it became a spectacle to the world. And in the preaching of the gospel, he is to those who are perishing, scandaliso, a scandal. But to those who are saved, he is salvation. He made an open show against the principalities and powers of this earth. The Bible says Christ has been evidently set before you. And again, in the context of of grievous sin, God solves the sin problem not by removing the snakes, not by sending the snakes back down into their holes, but by defeating them with this, with this victory, basically meeting them where they were at, if you will, demonstrating the reality of what Christ could do, getting the victory over sin, over that old serpent, the devil. So we have this display This display that was open for all who would look and live. This display that God originated. This display of the gospel that in very truth and very fact saved people. Now it would have been an amazing thing if if we could think of ourselves there to have been bitten by a snake, felt the, the fangs go into our, let's say our calf, felt the fiery burning uh, uh, a poison in us, knowing that we were going to be dying like the other people have died. And then we hear that word off in the distance. If you look to, to Moses' answer, God's answer, you'll live. And in the midst of this display, we see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the love of God. We see God working his way to save. Sixthly, deliverance. If any man had been bitten when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Again, this deliverance prefiguring, foreshadowing what the Lord Jesus Christ would do in the gospel as we read in John chapter 3. In numbers, we have the destruction through these fiery serpents. But in numbers, we have the salvation through God's brazen serpent. Think of Genesis. We always have to go back to Genesis chapter 3, which which runs through the entire Bible. But in Genesis chapter 3, 
Mankind's fall was through that serpent. In Numbers, in John, and throughout history, salvation is through the one who became sin for us. In Numbers, the remedy was look and live. In the New Testament, for Nicodemus, our Lord repeated this very basic element of truth. Look and live. I asked you, what was the relationship between Nicodemus when Jesus Christ uh, brought this account back up to him and said, this is what's going to happen. And whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I asked you, what was the relationship between Nicodemus and the Israelites of Numbers 21? Well, the Israelites of Numbers 21 were speaking against God. They had this outlandish sin. They were, uh, this is grievous sin of God's people. Nicodemus, on the other hand, in the New Testament, he's, he's this, this proper teacher of the law. He's looked on with, with favor. Um, he's, he's teaching God's people. He's respected. He's moral and upright. So what, how are these two, what's the connection between these two? Well, the connection is there's no distinction between sin. The, the Israelites in Numbers Day and Nicodemus, who had no clue what it meant to be born again, no clue what grace was all about. Religious, he knew a lot. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. But Nicodemus, the most moral, upright, well-respected individual in society, needs the gospel just as much as people who are outwardly speaking against God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. And so this is why Jesus told Nicodemus, and throughout the New Testament, we have warnings and invitations and beseeching and commands and, and direction to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and live. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world according to his righteousness by that man which he has ordained, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Numbers, we, we, we understand that a great majority of the people did look and they lived. In verse 10, the children of Israel set, set forward. It's only then they can set forward. They set forward and they pitched in Oboth, which means water skins. Now they can hold the water of life. Now, now they can be God's people once again, if you will. Well, very quickly, let me close with a couple of brief applications. Again, we must look to the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis. We do not look to him just in salvation, of course. We look to him for forgiveness. We look to, to learn of him. Uh, we look to him that we might imitate him. We look to him for fellowship and to experience his love. We look to him to grow in knowledge and grace. We look to him because he is our all in all. And, and, and the Israelites forgot to keep looking to God. They were looking to earthly leaders. They were looking to the law. They were looking at the horizon around about them. And they stopped looking to God. We need to, on a daily basis, look to him. And secondly, there's a warning relative to this, this brazen serpent. Let me read a verse from Second uh, Kings chapter 18. Uh, this is an account of Hezekiah 
And Hezekiah is doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord. And then listen to what he did, verse 4 of 2 Kings 18. He removed the high places, and he broke the images, and he cut down the groves, and he broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense unto it, but he called it Nehushtan, a piece of brass is what that means. So the Israelites... Wayward again, what are they doing? They're taking the brazen serpent that, that Moses made and they are morphing it, morphing it into the religion of the day, burning incense to it and, and trying to conform and force fit God's gospel into, into the image of that day, which was the groves burning incense, images, and Hezekiah, to his credit, and God said, this is a good thing. That, he said, it's a, it's a piece of brass and he cut it in pieces to try to prohibit the people from sinning this great sin and trying to forge God's gospel into the, into the, the metrics of the day. In the broader sense, of course, we have to be careful not to do the same thing, to keep the simplicity of the gospel, to keep the gospel centered and focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ and God's, God's plan and, and not big box it to, to, to some image that the world readily accepts when that's not God's way. I said, and I think you'll agree with me, that it was a very great sin to speak against God the way the Israelites did. And yet, as grievous, as bad as a sin that was, as Jesus said, whoever looks to him, whoever believes upon him, just as, as Moses lifted up that serpent, if they looked and believed, they would have eternal life. The wonder of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer for every condition, every sin. That's the, that's the power of the gospel. Well, let's close our study with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this historical account that points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in both the simplicity and the deepness of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for him today. We thank you that uh, we, we ourselves can identify much with the Israelites of old who could murmur, complain, get out of the way, uh, uh, and all these other things. And yet you have provided for us deliverance according to your perfect gospel. We thank you for that today. Receive our adoration, receive our love, and our commitment and desire uh, uh, Lord, to, to not be like those Israelites of old, but to go on to know the Lord and to walk with him and truly be that vessel of grace, exhibiting the light and the life of the gospel in our daily lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.